Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Left of Greg podcast. I'm Brian Marin, the host and creator of the show. As always, I will be joined by human behavior expert, Mr. Greg Williams, who the show is affectionately named after. Here on the Left of Greg show, our goal is to increase your advanced critical thinking skills through a better understanding of what we call human behavior, pattern recognition, and analysis. If you'd like to find out more about what that is, you can check us out on our website at arcadiacognorati.com or by following us on Facebook at HBPRA or on Twitter at A underscore Cognorati. You can also check us out on the videos of the podcast on the Left of Greg YouTube channel where we also post some short clips on some of the concepts that we talk about during the show. The links to everywhere I just mentioned are in the episode details, so go ahead and check them out while you're listening along. If you have any questions or would like us to cover a specific topic, please reach out to us at leftofgreg at gmail.com. On today's episode, we are joined by author and speech-language pathologist Susan Berkowitz. Susan has worked with students with significant disabilities, particularly students with autism and complex communication needs for more than 40 years. She's also the author of the book, Make the Connection, a practical guide to parents and practitioners for teaching the nonverbal child to communicate. You can find out more about Susan and her work by clicking the links in the episode details. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Today we have on the show Susan Berkowitz, who is a speech-language pathologist and deals a, a lot with folks uh, with uh, special needs students and children and has been doing it for a really, really long time. So to get into why she's going to be on here and why we reach out here, I'm just going to go ahead and throw it right to Greg to start off with and kind of tell us and the, the listeners and everyone out there why we wanted to have Susan on first and then we'll get into her. No, and I, I appreciate that, Brian, and, and welcome, Susan. Uh, I think you both know today's a very special show for me. Uh, I've been working on setting this up for some time now. Uh, I would recommend at this point that any teachers, first responders, parents, uh, not only pay close attention to this podcast, but because of all our, our, our podcasts are free, definitely make sure you catalog this and send it around to your friends. Uh, we're going to talk about a variety of topics today. One of them is AAC, uh, Augmentative and Alternative Communication is all about communication methods used to supplement or replace speech or writing for those folks who live within and amongst us who might have an impairment uh, in the production or comprehension of either the spoken or, or written word. Uh, and for a long time now, we wanted to talk to uh, someone on the podcast about the differences and similarities in nonverbal communication, including both gestures and body language and use of symbolic aided communication in extremis. In those emergency situations that we encounter often, and, and that certainly our listens and our, uh, our viewers do. And Brian, you and I both know there's a lot of posers out there, uh, and there's a lot of folks who rely uh, solely on their body language knowledge by tuning into a TED Talk or listening to Ekman or Navarro or the Pease family or somebody, uh, some other talking head telling them all the benefits of uh, body language. And I'm not a believer in any body language or paralanguage system that isn't based on baseline comparison that works in people, events, and vehicles, and, and has the domains of human behavior because an individual body language cue without context doesn't give you relevance. And without context and relevance, they don't mean a thing. You, you, could, you could tell somebody that hasn't had the training that this means stress and it actually means that the person's given a comfort cue. You can tell them this means anger and it's actually the person's yawning. So nonverbal communication is hugely important and certainly to our audience. And, and what I posed to, to Susan a long time ago is, hey, let's say rather than in a targeting application for trying to determine probable cause, let's say instead we're involved in an emergency evacuation. Uh, Brian, I'll, I'll take you back down to Dallas just a little while ago with the school. And, and we encounter now a room full of kids with autism. And they'll likely have a unique response to this emergency right. situation. And if you couple that with their likely anxiety disorders, that's going to create a perfect storm for law enforcement professionals or emergency personnel who might not be able to, to cope with that. Or maybe they haven't had training how, how to use the behaviors that they're witnessing uh, or that the kids might exhibit. So you can imagine how those uh, untrained first responders could actually needlessly complicate, which would be an otherwise manageable situation. Just a, a repetitive training situation could go uh, off into a spiral. And at Arcadia, we feel the training changes behavior. And so Brian and I sought out a subject matter expert in the field. And I was so surprised that there was one that stood out like a beacon. And our, our guest today, Susan Berkowitz, has provided training in the past uh, first responders, law enforcement professionals, court-appointed advocates for 
uh, uh, non-speaking individuals. And I, Brian, I think she's perfectly suited for our needs, what we do. And Susan, I just can't tell you how excited I am to finally have you on the pod. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. And I do have experience here in Southern California. We have fires, uh, which if you've watched the news anywhere, you hear all about. And yep. so that's an added concern. I know in my own neighborhood was evacuated a few years ago. And I happen to know there are at least four kids with nonverbal autism living in my neighborhood, probably okay. more. Um, and so that that's a very real issue for families, um, even in situations like fires, which happen routinely here in Southern California, uh, unfortunately, um, in addition to those things like school shootings and other emergency situations. Uh, when Absolutely. you have kids who are prone to anxiety, uh, who have no idea what's going on, who can't communicate how they feel, uh, aren't understanding, uh, it's out of their routine, and yes, that anxiety ramps up really high. And anxiety can uh, show itself in many different behaviors and many different kinds of responses in kids. And so for first responders, uh, teachers to understand uh, where the behavior is coming from um, and what is being communicated is really important. No, no, yeah. it's brilliant. And, and, and Brian, one of the things I think, I'm sorry, we're going out of order. Usually we, <laughs> we, we talk about your background and stuff, that, but you, no, you hit it right, you hit a home run right out of the chute, and we love that. Uh, I want to throw something at you. What we found on, on use of force cases and expert witness testimony that we've done, and you know, we've only taught and fought in 53 countries, but one of the things that we've seen is that when a person is stymied by the situation, when a person is overwhelmed by the event, and now they're not getting the response from a person they're trying to help or give first aid to, they escalate the level of violence. Even if they don't want to, it's autonomic that they'll increase the use of force, for example. They'll, they'll think that the person is just trying to resist them when, in fact, the person's only trying to, to jump that barrier of communication. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, um, you know, we take a look at a lot of the behaviors that we see in uh, folks who um, either have autism or some other disorder and are nonverbal, and we often don't recognize that 99% of those behaviors are communication. They're trying to tell us something. Right. There you um, go. And things like anxiety um, can manifest themselves in so many different ways in aggression, in tantruming in um, withdrawing. So, uh, so for anybody to understand a particular child and what they're doing in this situation if they don't know them um, and don't know the context of, of their behaviors uh, can be very, very difficult. And as you Absolutely. say, yes, it can escalate the behavior very quickly. Right. And, and I, this gets kind of, we got right into exactly why Greg reached out and, and wanted to have you on here is because like we talk about, you know, in these high stress events and reading you know, behavior and understanding what someone's trying to communicate. You know, these are rapid judgments sometimes in some of these yeah. situations that we have to make. We go through our life doing that. And then what we always say is, like Greg said, you know, when we teach a little bit of body language, it's like one thing, one part of what we do is a very small part of what we do because we go from big to small. But but we, we say, you know, you don't jam a square peg into a round hole, right? Yeah. This is what it likely means under normal human behavior. And when we say normal just in a, in a, in a clinical sense of this yeah. is what normal physiological reactions a person would have. Right. But if they're not having that physiological reaction, that doesn't mean they're guilty or doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. It just means they're not having that normal physiological reaction. So you have to say, well, well, why is that? And this is a perfect example of one of those situations that a lot of, especially our listeners in law enforcement and, and, and first responders and, and folks who work in hospitals and, and schools come across is that, well, I'm not seeing this normal reaction. So it must be this person is up to something or it must be they're doing something wrong. When in fact, what you're talking about is, is no, 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 there's people with different mental health issues or different uh, disorders, especially when you talk about with, especially folks with autism, right? And how they express things or their reactions in those situations. So, so get, I, I like your, your example, you talk about the fire. So, so how do those examples, are they different? Give us some, some maybe, Hey, this is with someone on this autism spectrum. This is how they might try and communicate. How would that be different than what I'm used to seeing? Again, there's a wide, wide range. Right. And, um, and that, that of, might be, I'm sorry. I didn't, yeah. I didn't mean to like throw like, Hey, give me oh, the no, three things. But, but just so you know, Susan, yeah. this is, this is yeah. what we usually call Brian's loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> And sometimes they don't get I, any easier. <laughs> yeah. 
no we problem. can we can make it um, we can we can make that question as small and just give some some example yeah, yeah right we can't just go into i know that was a big question fine. but well but there have been a lot of examples in the news unfortunately recently mm -hmm. of uh, law enforcement encountering individuals with disabilities um either in a store um pushing and and maybe mm -hmm. appearing aggressive or uh laying down in the middle of the of uh road and not listening exactly. to directions to get up um not understanding why they can't be there right. um and uh, and so there have been there have been lots and lots of different contexts where there have been um interactions with law enforcement and and people who do not uh react uh, and respond and behave the way neurotypical individuals do. And yeah, there is really a, such a wide, wide range of neurodiversity and um, exactly. how, how those things can manifest. Um, they, so you might get an individual who doesn't follow directions and it's not because they're being non-compliant, it's because they don't understand the question or they are so anxious in the situation that they can't process the language. And that's a really, really important thing for uh, first responders, for teachers, for parents to remember, is that for all of us, when we're upset, we have a hard time processing language. The, I'm so mad at you, I'm speechless, I can't even yep. say how mad I am, happens to all of us. So for an individual who doesn't understand and doesn't have the language uh, to communicate that and has difficulty processing language at any time, once you get them upset or scared or anxious, language processing goes out the window. You can be Absolutely. giving them directions that ordinarily they might be able to follow and it's just, it's not gonna happen. Um, and to know that this isn't defiance, it isn't the individual refusing to do what you want him to do, it's the inability of him to understand what you want and to make his, himself do uh, what it is you want him to do. Um, and that's, that's huge. Um, and Susan, Susan, you're too young to remember this, but I'll take you back about 35 years ago um, in, in law enforcement. <laughs> and uh, in law enforcement, they came up with the term EDP, which meant an emotionally disturbed person. Yep. And what we saw is at the end of the 80s, or correction, the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, there was a huge spike in, in uh, use of force capers that would come up. And police officers have an internal time schedule where we've got to get to the next call and we've yep. got to clear this call. And back then, I'm not saying it's right, I'm saying it's what is. Back then, when they went to a domestic, rather than trying to do something about the domestic situation or de-escalate it at all, uh, it was, this was gospel. Listen, if we have to come back here one more time, one of you is going to jail. Now, that didn't help anybody, and there was a lot of victims that spiraled out of that, and we learned. Law enforcement learned that. Now, if I can go to, to this situation with EDPs, I apologize, I'm being besieged by a, a fly at, at this point. <laughs> but what happened is I, I saw uh, on Van Dyke, just north of 8 Mile, uh, uh, old veteran cop, old gray hair, and uh, walked up in a female, uh, just proned out immediately when they were arresting her. And she said, listen, you can take me to jail, but I'm having an anxiety attack. You just got to give me a second to process this. The world just got really big. And I could tell from her language that she wasn't playing a game. She wasn't, this wasn't an act to get out of going to jail because a lot of people come up with amazing acts oh, yeah. or you know, <laughs> get fleet of foot. And none of the coppers at the scene that I was witnessing had a architecture for that discussion. Now we have to teach, uh, you know, SEAL teams that are going into areas where they don't have language ability. And uh, we have to deal with a situation where it's a shoot, don't shoot. And things are happening very rapidly. What I loved, and 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 I, Brian, I will uh, early and often drive people to Susan's website, and and she's a best-selling author, and you gotta read what this woman has put in print. What I loved is your stuff was hand in glove with how we teach when it comes to listen. Look at all the signs because all the signs will be pointing that there's a problem here, and the problem, if it's with communication, there's an alternative, and that's that's what you spent most of your life doing is teaching people alternative forms of communication. So I want to throw a loaded question at you because yeah. I like I like trying to simplify stuff. This is a universal sign for choking, which I'm going to do if I swallow that fly. Um, there, there does there exist or is there sort of a universal way to try to get there quickly 
with uh, uh, somebody that's having a language issue, uh, not communicating well, how do I get them on track and say, I, I understand, let me help you. And, and right there, I just looked like Coco the gorilla, the sign gorilla doing that. <laughs> but, but there's got to be a way. How, how do I do that best? Um, sometimes just using the sign for help will do. I'm here to help. Um, we begin to teach. So back in the 70s, yes, we did teach signs. And that's where I started teaching signs to kids with autism because we discovered that folks with developmental disabilities could learn signs easier than they could learn to speak. They, they weren't talking, but we could give them signs. We were not teaching them sign language. Nobody right. in the deaf community understood any of these signs, but they worked um, in context, they worked in the environment. And um, so, and we still frequently do that. Uh, we teach, still teach these kids a lot of signs because it's a whole lot easier to sign bathroom than scream yep. it in the middle of the movie theater we, or the we restaurant. We still use that in class yeah. as instructors. We're in very big auditoriums. And so we still use that. And, and Brian uses this. I'm still not sure what that means, but I'm sorry, please go ahead. No, that's fine. So, um, so we'll discover that there are certain signs that a lot of nonverbal kids know and right. the sign for more, the sign for stop, uh, the sign for help. And so stop or help might be good ones um, to, great idea. to use. Um, the child might understand that you can communicate, he can communicate with you maybe, um, and that helps. Um, it also, um, you could use the sign for calming down um, or uh, those are probably the three that would work the best right. uh, for kids in that situation um, and it may not work they again they may not process um, they might and again the visual is a whole lot better um, I always tell families to uh, to have uh, communication symbols available in the environment. Um, it's a really good idea to, you know, we have the little uh, sticker that you put on the bedroom window for yep. first responders to know there's a child in that room. Right. Also put up a, a communication symbol for nonverbal or for a communication systems. So the first responder might see that and recognize that there's somebody there who's not just a child, but a nonverbal child who can't communicate with them. Um, and so I, you know, I like to, to see that in, um, in homes and I tell parents to do that a lot. That's, um, something that we can do, um, easily and, and can help first responders, uh, training first responders, uh, to understand some of the signs, uh, that you'll get with a nonverbal child, uh, particularly one with autism who isn't going to respond the way you expect them to. Right. And, and this is so this is all all great stuff. And I like the the analogy you said a little bit earlier was about, you know, the I, which I, I like those analogies because it makes sense to me. The one about anger. Right. It's hard for yeah. me to communicate with anyone when I'm pissed off and angry. Exactly. So, and, and, and I know how to effectively communicate. <laughs> I literally get paid to talk right. to groups of people. Right. So so I like that because then it's like now imagine if you don't have that ability to communicate. Yeah and you're going, you're feeling those same emotions. It's like, okay, now that at least lets me understand how complicated the issue can be, right? Okay, yeah. so now I have to take a different approach. So, so you brought up a few things too about how, uh, you know, people can't do that or, or on, have different issues where with communication. And I know, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one of them, because here in the US, uh, to put it in context, normal, and again, this is just, you know, in, in, in the clinical sense of normal communication is we face each other we make eye contact when someone talks to each other but that may not be the case with other people who don't communicate well yeah so no and that's certainly not just autism brian right. i believe that would be the asperger's range i believe that there would be a lot of it as a matter of fact and not not being pedantic but uh, uh you know that shelly's uh, father uh, just passed away and was a great guy but he worked for general motors in detroit as a engineer for 38 years uh, uh and he could not look you in the eye. He was an engineer and he looked at his feet. And when it was a, a big, happy uh, event like Christmas, he looked at my feet. Uh, so we <laughs> never got that in, in uh, Campesinos coming from Mexico into the United States. They're, they're used to a different type of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So many times when they see an authority figure, they won't make eye contact mm -hmm. and they'll look down. And, and I've seen law enforcement mistake that saying, oh, the person's trying not to tell the truth or they're they're mm -hmm. hiding their motion. And, and Susan, that's not always true, is it? No, no. There, um, there is, again, such a 
wide spectrum of what's appropriate and what's what we consider, most of us consider inappropriate, but is very appropriate for certain individuals. And, um, you know, there may be the lack of eye contact. There may right. be the unwillingness to be touched and led somewhere. Uh, the unwillingness to, um, to do, uh, yeah, just lost my word. That happens as you age. What a perfect... <laughs> Perfect topic to talk about that. Yeah. yeah, and one thing, Susan, one thing that I that I like is uh, you mentioned, like I understand with courts and courts uh, and working with the prosecutor's office or the defense, that's very that's very uh, how how would you say that's very clinical, it's very procedural. Uh, but see here and into all our law enforcement viewers, so all our our our, our first responders, ambi crews, this would be a situation, Brian where you could work with somebody like Susan and come up with three or four flashcards. And those flashcards could be an immediate, listen, I'm not getting anywhere with this person. Try the flashcard. And that laminated flashcard on the visor for yeah. a veteran law enforcement. Can you imagine, you know, you could save a life. And that's what we're all about here. We're all about brainstorming ways where the common average citizen, this, look, a parent right now that's watching our show, doesn't know the best way perhaps to commune with to communicate with their non-communicative uh, child because the, 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 the listen when a baby communicates with mom they're doing it non-verbally anyway okay the first few years of their life they don't have that ability but it's not that easy when you add uh, perhaps anxiety or some other debilitating disease or uh, um, um, a mental illness that that, that overly complicates it so if it, Susan I come to you as a parent not as a teacher yet, and we'll talk teacher and I think law enforcement, but I come to you as a parent, is there a way of testing uh, uh, to see if my child needs additional uh, uh, help from somebody that's a linguist and or somebody that does what you do? who is not communicating at his or her age appropriate level is a candidate for okay. some form of intervention. Um, I, absolutely, with nonverbal children, it's very easy to tell. They don't start talking. They don't start communicating the way other kids do. Um, and so it's fairly easy for a parent to recognize that this just isn't happening. Um, we say that augmentative communication is appropriate for anybody whose speech is not meeting all of their communication needs. So people who are completely nonverbal, people who may be verbal, but don't have enough language mm -hmm. to meet all of their communication needs. And so in the area of autism, you get kids who have a dozen or two dozen words. That's not enough to meet their communication needs. Um, in an adult who's had a stroke, Great point. again, a half a dozen words, not enough to meet their communication needs. And so we want to look at providing them with something to either augment their speech or as an alternative to it. And anybody, um, there's a, there's a, a wide, wide range of, of folks out there who need some support. Right, certainly. And, and, and so now as a parent, I've got some sort of gating mechanism that gives me an idea that, listen, something isn't right. And, and there's no shame in coming in because here, here's the thing with sometimes learning disabilities. When, when uh, I was a kid, uh, uh, I was a little rambunctious back in the sixties. And so right away they said, Oh, there's a the learning disability. But what I had is I had a uh, dad that was born in a place called Stinking Creek Holler, and uh, his whole family worked in the mines, and they had a very distinct way of speaking. My mom was first-generation German, and my mom learned English, uh, pidgin English, on the way over to America, so she had a very distinct way of speaking. So when I was in school, all I was is a product of my mom and my dad. So my speech patterns were very different. And I remember all of a sudden I was in a special education class and they were feeding me Ritalin. And it's like, wait a minute, how, how is this determination made? Yeah. <laughs> when, when we're afraid sometimes, what, what happens is either we're embarrassed to go because we think that somehow we'll be thought of as, as uh, not as smart as somebody else or, yeah. uh, you know, there's a stigma associated with it. Or they overreact and it's like, oh, I've seen this before. And all of a sudden you're shoved in a, in a little room and given drugs. How do we avoid that? How does, how does mom and dad, and how does a teacher stop that pipeline from starting? Does that make sense? It does. I think we're a lot better than we were in the 60s and 70s. I certainly hope we are I, um, yeah. at identifying yeah. the problems and putting our finger on exactly what the problem is and what it isn't. We're not perfect at it. Um, I 
came out of, of school um, around the time that PL 94142 was passed. And so right. we did need all of a sudden to start paying attention to those kids with special, uh, special needs. For a long time, it was put them in separate schools, but, um, right. but we were at least getting better at providing some services. We've gotten a lot better at diagnosis, um, certainly, uh, particularly with autism, but uh, with a lot of other uh, learning disabilities and language problems. Uh, the field of speech pathology has come a really long way in the last right. 40 years while I've been in the field. And, um, and so I think that we, in general, and it doesn't happen everywhere, um, but in general, we are better at not making those mistakes. Uh, we're right. not foolproof, not by any means. Um, I'm encouraging awareness month to make people aware um, of what it is um, and who needs it and that it's important and it's not shameful. Um, yeah, that's I know great. We do yeah, no, and, and that's kind of what I, I also wanted to hit on as well, because you've been doing this for, you know, 40 years or so, you know, and, and the idea is, uh, I know a lot of these different uh, issues, uh, disorders, uh, especially people with on uh, uh, the autism spectrum, right, a lot of this stuff is kind of just really becoming general knowledge, I would say, over the last maybe 10 years, or maybe a little bit longer, but, but it's really... Yeah, it, it may have been diagnosed before... But it wasn't understood, Brian. I think right. that's a oh, great yeah. point. And I yeah. think just, that's a great point. And just going to kind of what you said, how we've grown. Well, now we used to put people, hey, you're going to be in this program. And then we've gotten better going, oh, wait a minute. That person just needed a little bit of extra attention here. And we can keep them in the same school. Because I know that's happening. And kids are getting, uh, they'll having aid or teachers come in that work, especially with them while they're in, mm -hmm. a, in the in the class. So we like using stuff when we, we stick to the science of human behavior. What we teach, we go, you know, what has stood the test of time, right? What, what continues to work today that worked, you know, 50, a hundred, a thousand, 5,000 years ago throughout human history, because that's not right. going to change. So, so because this was, I would say new back when you first started, you know, people understanding it, what has stood the test of time in terms of things that you've seen that you know, or it can can say, hey, this is what this person needs, or this is a uh, this is something that I see commonly. Like, are there other key takeaways that you've seen over your career? There are. Um, so when I started, autism was still called childhood schizophrenia. Right. Right. Um, it wasn't even called that. Right. No. And people were still being refrigerated. Their mothers. Um, thanks to Bruno Bettelheim. We've come a long way since then, fortunately. Um, I have worked a lot with uh, the folks in the applied behavior analysis field, um, and there are a lot of those uh, strategies and techniques that have stood the test of time that are evidence-based. Uh, we've changed a lot about the way we work with building language through um, through ABA systems, and you know we don't sit down and do those ridiculous discrete trials over and over and over again and drilling kids. Um, but there are certainly um, aspects of behavioral teaching techniques that have stood up and been proven over and over again. There's uh, one uh, particular method called pivotal response that uh, recently was shown in yet another study uh, to be um, an excellent, excellent way to build language and communication skills with kids on the spectrum. Um, that has been around for a while and there's been, a, again, a lot of research has stood the test of time. Um, a lot of, of just connecting. Um, one of the things that we've discovered is that kids need to play. They need to play to learn. A lot of kids uh, with disabilities don't get those experiences. They don't get to play with toys. They don't get to play with other kids. They don't know how to interact with things. And so uh, if we just sit and play with them and mm -hmm. show them how to play and interact with yeah. them, that goes a long way to breaking down a lot of barriers and beginning to build some engagement to build communication. Right. And, yep. and that goes into, and you could, you could tell me if this is a good way to look at it or not, but I've always seen it because my, actually my mom's an occupational therapist. Yeah. And so I've been around kind of 
kids or people with different special needs like my whole life. So it was never even from a, as a young kid, it wasn't uh, uh, strange or odd to me yeah. just because I had that experience at a young age. But a lot of people don't have that experience, right? Yeah. So one way, anything I've always looked at, and, and this goes into just interacting with humans. So we talk about communication. I've been around the world. I've been dropped in countries where I don't speak the language. So you got to figure something out, right? So exactly. with, with, with folks like this, I always go, all right, well, that person they see the world differently than I do. Okay, so let's let's start there and then develop a way like maybe I can see a little bit into their window of how they see things and they could see into mine maybe. But but if I start with the fact, I always start with the fact with that person sees the world differently than everyone else. I'm like, well, I can relate to that in the sense that I see the world very differently than mm -hmm. a lot of other folks. So so is that like a good place to start and where do I go to it? with? Them? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, just finding a common area of engagement finding something that that child can relate to, that you can interact with them. Um, in, in my speech pathology practice, that's often been bubbles, <laughs> but okay. um, even that's with great. adults, that's right? Great. But, but finding, finding something that engages both of you, um, meeting yeah. them where they are with what, uh, what interests them you know for a lot of years we we looked at people on the spectrum and some of their um obsessive or compulsive behaviors and the the lining up of the matchbox cars and and the fascination with trains and yep. you know, some of those are the stereotypical things that we hear and for a lot of years we heard oh you should you know stop that don't don't let him do that uh interrupt that uh don't let him engage with those and what we've really discovered is no, that's what's going to engage him. Um, find where he is and what he's interested in. And that's how you're going to build communication and a rapport with them. Um, meet him where uh, he is. You bring up a couple of great points, and I want to hit on, on two of them, Brian, if I can. The first one is uh, being embedded with many special operational forces over the years and going into these uh, places that are not a lot of fun. And many are non-permissive or semi-permissive. Many are either very kinetic or, or at least higher uh, uh, kinetic action going on. And so, Brian, I would challenge you that all the people that got into those situations that were just like you learned very quickly and thrived in those environments, even though they didn't have the language ability or a interpreter or a cultural translator. Is that a fair statement? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now, would you also agree, and I'm taking this from the perspective of having a piece of, of uh, clear plastic duct taped to my forearm and a little vis-a-vis uh, -vis marker, anytime that I learned how to say uh, yes, no, stop, up, down, left, right, yeah. help, water, those things would go right on my wrist. And, and I would come up with perhaps a few of those uh, uh, phrases, uh, the meeting of the day, salam alaikum, or alaikum as-salam, Anything that I could, for example, in a Middle Eastern country that was very different, I would, don't want to try that, for example, in Hungary or Poland. Yeah. I'd want to learn what was going on the ground there, you know, Jankuya. Uh, uh, so my idea is that uh, objectively, we're talking about finding a common thread of communication, and it doesn't have to be fluency. It can be flashcardy. And yeah. then the second part of that, I think both of you hit on something, too. What I've seen is this, this pendulous swing to hyper-realistic training. And most of that training is at incident, at bang. Instead of the, the, the preparation for incidents, listen, we're not just talking about a school shooting. We can talk about tornadic weather. We could be talking about uh, a, a uh, police raid on a home. And in that same complex, there's a special needs person, right? So the idea with this hyper-realism of, uh, booting doors and ramming cars and firing paint pellets and yelling and screaming, that's fine. And there's there's a a a a, a, ne a necessity for that type of training, but not often. And 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 what I mean by that is we're paying a lot of money for that kind of training. When what I'm hearing from the experts and what I'm seeing on the ground is if we all sat in a school circle and we just talked, if we had the firemen show up and show what they're going to look like when they arrive and sat down and played with the kids. Yeah. If we had the officers show up and had the Ram sitting next to them and explain to the kids, Hey, when I come through that door, it's going to be pretty noisy. You start now creating this communication well before the incident ever occurs. So now you're not shocked by all that, that, that onset of, of, of emergency. Yeah. Is that a fair statement? You guys see it that way? Absolutely. That would be wonderful. Um, if, and, and even the, the flashcards, if, if, uh, First responders had a couple of symbols um, 
that were laminated, exactly. that were stuck in a pocket that they could right. pull out so that they have that come, come with me or go, we're going this way. Um, that, uh, uh, that the children could understand that would go a long way to, to helping. Um, and yeah, getting the training. Training is, um, training is difficult. I, um, I have had any number of interactions with uh, the police and persons with mental illness um, here in my area. And, and they don't have the training and they don't know what's right. going on and they don't understand the reactions. And so you get this with folks with disabilities too, it, other disabilities, what you want. And so I'm going to dig my heels in and I'm going to cover my ears because it's too loud and I'm going to resist and get rigid and fall to the ground. And you need to understand where this is coming from. And, um, and for, for the first responders and even teachers to get the kind Absolutely. of training that says this is what's happening um, is unfortunately not common enough. Right. And, and to get, you know, to a certain level where you can do that takes time and it takes training and understanding. And, and yeah. you're right. We, we always want more time for training and education, but so we always try to do what's, what's the basic thing that, you know, we can do or understand. So one of the things I liked it, cause there was an example I saw in the news, I'll, I'll bring it up as I, I tell this, but one of the things we talk about, especially when we get down to behavior and understanding body language and kinesics and biometrics and everything that go with that is that, if Susan, if we're talking and we're having a conversation, we're going back and forth and you start to mimic a little bit of my behavior or my actions, I know that's a good thing because that means basically that we're communicating, right? So you're receiving what I'm transmitting and I'm receiving what you're transmitting. So there's a, there's, we're going back and forth. That's good. No matter what the conversation is, at least we're focused, we're communicating, right? So if I have someone that, that doesn't have that, one of, one of the things we can do is if I can start to mimic their behavior, sometimes they see that as, oh, okay, it's like uh, when you see a dog, you know, put its paws down on the ground and its butt in there and its tail's wagging, it means that, oh, it wants to play. If you walk up to a dog as a person and start doing it, they think, wait a minute, this person wants to play with me, right? So I've seen it where there was, a, I think a photo kind of went viral, sort of, it was a principal or, or teacher at a school, I can't remember where it was, but there was a kid with having these issues who couldn't communicate and the kid, you know, lay down on the ground and put its face down and only look one way. So all the principal did was walked over there and laid down on the ground next to him, did the exact same thing that that child was doing. And all of a sudden the kid looked at him and it opened up, it opened up a window, it opened up a dialogue to now at least start. So I think something, and you could tell me from your experience, something as simple as basic mimicking someone's actions yeah, and there up. have been a lot of those incidents in the news right. recently. Right, um, little kids getting haircuts and yep. um, and goes right. ending up on the ground, getting their haircut, sitting down on the floor, and um, and in uh, places like Disneyland or movie theaters or whatever, where a child has just dropped to the ground and somebody has done the same thing, gone down to the ground, talked to them where where they're at. It it does really help a lot. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things, Brian, and, and by no means, uh, folks listening is Brian trying to say that you're belittling, belittling a person, or you're going to repeat one of their ticks or their involuntary actions. What he's trying to say is any communication is better than no communication. So let's go to the police from a hostage negotiation standpoint. Uh, if a person is killing on schedule, you have to do an immediate response. If that person stops killing and starts negotiating for every second, every minute that passes, that there's not shooting going on, you're winning. That's what you have to take a look at and say, hey, listen, I can slow time down, give myself the gift of time and distance and start communicating. And you're going to say, I don't have that time. I'm a first responder. I'm in a fire situation. There's a shooting. Hey, listen, you're going to have to find the time or you're going to have to ask for more body bags. Brian, we say that all the time about yeah. paying. You're going to pay for the training or you're going to pay for the, the you know, the body bags or you're going to pay for the stretcher. So I would say uh, uh, what I'm seeing is a, a good cogent strategy is one, go to your schools, go to the folks in your community, go to your first responders, your, your, your subject matter expertise is there. Go to those places and say, this is a likelihood. 
And because it's a likelihood that we may be in an emergency and have to respond to it, let's start talking about incorporating that into every response that we do. And somebody listening right now is saying, oh, we do that because in our, our uh, weather response, we always make sure that there's a person with the ramp and the person with the umbrella. We're talking simple human communication yeah. with a spectrum of folks that uh, are prone to anxiety and aren't going to be able to ask for your help. Or when you come, they're going to be so uh, overwhelmed by the event or overcome by emotion that they may they may be debilitated. They're not able to to function. So predictive analysis means we go to those incidents and say, what if? And I'll tell you, if we do that in the condo complex when we're going to do a warrant service or a raid, if we do that on the EMS rig that might be going not just to the school where people have been trained, because see, sometimes we train first responders. A good example is that Sterling and Chadron, Nebraska and in north northeastern Colorado, Brian, where for every one of those small communities, they had a, uh, an activist or a specialist or a linguist or somebody that they could call. But you know what? Where, where I am, 36 miles from uh, Crested Butte right now, and it's snowing like a madman, we might not have that ability. Right. I might come across a traffic accident, and I now have to do something fast. So what I like, and, and Susan, I really want to talk about the body of work that you've done, and I want to talk about some resources that you have available. Yeah, that's... Brian, what I like is that if I pulled off to the side of the road, I can still do something. I learned CPR, so I never have to use it. I learned the Heimlich, so I don't have to use it. I want to learn a couple of tricks that I can use in this instant that'll help me with the ACC. I think um, using the signs is one, one way because you don't have to have any equipment. You don't have a communication system. You don't need it. You can Use a couple of signs um, to indicate that you're there to help, yep. um, that you want to know if they're hurt. Uh, and that's uh, probably the best thing you can do, lacking equipment and lacking a communication system, um, right. indicating that uh, with facial expressions and body language and a couple of signs that you're there to help, um, to stay calm, and to give you time. So, sure, so, help is on yeah. the way. Just those yeah. basics, and I, and I completely agree with Susan. And not not that I'm an expert by any uh, standpoint here, but I'll tell you, this is not unlike our work in HBPR and A. Brian. This is a form of communication of human communication that all tribe sets, gangs, world over, use, and and they are born out of necessity. They're born out of emergency situations. If you look in any any community, even the smallest, and there have been um, actual research studies on tiny, tiny little communities out in the middle of the Sahara, um, everyone, every community that has had somebody who um, has hearing problems, has deaf members, has developed their own unique oh, system of sign language. Absolutely. Right. And that, I, I, I say that would be in, inside a family, Brian. I mean, yes. you've seen that with the small family sets in, in communities in you, other countries. Yeah. And, that, and that's that's a great point right there. It's kind of what we're talking about as well. We say the stuff that we do, Susan, is universal. You know, the same issues I, that um, a law enforcement officer, first responders can have dealing with someone who's who's autistic or has different mental health issues is no different than me getting dropped into the middle of uh, the Middle East, not speaking the language and having to work with someone and deal with them. So if I just approach yeah. it from that way, then it becomes, I think, less foreign to me or less, uh, uh, hey, I don't really understand this. I can demystify it a little bit by just relating to something I know. So, so I want to get to, I know it, it, we, we want to get to what your, you have an actual book and everything that, Actually, that we can and By the way, your website is so easy to navigate. Yeah. We want to make sure that our viewers and our listeners can get there. So and we want to know about I'll, your book. I'll put, I'll put the link up with the episode details on Susan yep. Berkowitz. You can Google it. You're the first thing to pop up. But tell us a little bit about your book and just specifically about what you talk about in there, what, what the takeaways are, what people can learn from it. All right. So I wrote the book, which is called Make the Connection. And there's a long subtitle I won't yeah. go into. Yeah, it's a perfect to title, Amazon, though. It's great. It's, so, it's right yeah. here playing as we're speaking. Yeah. yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, I wrote it for parents because in my practice, and um, so I've been doing this for 46 years. Uh, the last 22 years, I've been uh, in my own private practice doing training uh, and evaluations for parents, for school districts, um, anywhere somebody asks me. And what I've had over and over and over is the same parents expressing the same frustration. And I found myself repeating the same things, giving them the same information. 
And I felt like, you know, that's great. I've probably helped several hundred families here in my area. Uh, but what about everybody else? And where are all the other parents getting this information? And they're not. Um, and so I wanted to write a book that parents could navigate, that it wasn't like a textbook, it wasn't too difficult to understand, and it gave them step-by-step -step roadmap. Here's what you do, here's how you do it, here are examples, here's a way to do it in this situation, and that situation, and the next one. And, um, and each chapter builds on the next and tells parents where to go to how to get their kids to start communicating. I had speech pathologists who said, oh, write it for us too, because we don't want to wade through another textbook. Yeah. And so um, I tried to make it uh, applicable to both. And I've had both parents and speech pathologists read it and love it. Um, I hope so. Uh, I just, I don't think that there was anything that existed um, before I put this out. And, um, and I want parents to, to have the power to help their own kids. Well, the other thing too, Brian, and I think you noticed it as well, uh, Susan, your, your site is set up so it's so easy to navigate that you have a bunch of information. It's not just about you. It's not just about the book. It, it's sort of where I can go yeah. to network all of this great stuff. And, and so that's going to be on the site. And I, I highly, highly uh, recommend everybody that's listening, you got to go there. You got to find this out because if you're an administrator, if you're a boss, if you're a supervisor, this is going to come up and that paragraph that you put that we're going to include uh, special needs personnel in our drills and everything. It's not enough. You're not thinking deeply enough. And I'll give you a personal example, Brian. Uh, you know, we, uh, Susan, we fly a lot. We fly all over the gosh darn world. So we're in that, that fuselage all the time with all those other people coughing and wheezing and sneezing on us. And I'm a, I'm an old school guy. I like my glasses and my crossword. I can see perfectly, but I can't read without my glasses. And, and then like when we're on here, I'm constantly writing notes to myself. Mm -hmm. So I got to have my glasses. So being without my glasses, imagine the anxiety. So what do people with glasses for reading have? We got readers everywhere. We got the little dollar pair stuck here, stuck there. In every room. Every room, <laughs> right? Just like a smoker is going to have a, a lighter everywhere. And, you know, so if they miss one or one goes down. Now, <clears throat> on the airplane, uh, the new thing is that you have to be able to watch a movie or, or whatever. And these kids nowadays are great at it. But you got to watch it on this little baby yeah. thing. So I also have a problem because uh, if I don't have my glasses on, I'm certainly not going to be able to see that. But I can't hear very well at all. Too many explosions and, and gunshots. So I have to use the closed captioning system. Now, on my TV at home, my wife has programmed it on every television. So when I'm in a room and I turn it on, it's very simple to find. Imagine being in a hotel and I have to search through everything. And it's the most complicated junk to try to get closed caption. Now, somebody will say, just turn it up. With my hearing loss, just turning it up yeah, does nothing. When you, when you no. just turn it up, I'm in the hotel room next to you going, turn it down. Ryan yeah. always knows what I'm watching. And that <laughs> you, is a, you've got your sensory neural uh, hearing loss right yeah. there. So, and, and, and then now you complicate that by I'm in the airplane back with the rest of the, the people in 46F. I'm not happy. My, my crossword puzzle isn't keeping me awake. So I try to watch this little show, and there's no closed captioning. And what I'm trying to put into context, Brian, is those issues – people are encountering all the time and they're not going to get easy in extremis. They're going to get harder. Right. And then when, when now the power is out, yeah. uh, which happened to how many millions of people uh, last night outside of uh, Houston and Dallas with that storm that came through. And now the lights are flashing. You're going to have some people that come undone. And we talk about increasing human performance, supervisors, teachers, administrators, law enforcement professionals, get a hold of Susan. Because if you don't, what's going to happen is you're going to have this discussion again, but it's going to be after the incident with the lawyers saying, why didn't we prep for this? This would have been a logical thing. So, so I'm by no means uh, the poster child for saying uh, uh, different language uh, ability, but I can tell you, Brian, I get angry all the time when we're on the road and I misunderstand. How many times have I gone to you and say, I think I missed that signal. What does this person want? And so I can only mirror the anxiety that somebody else would feel in an emergency. And Susan, you're, you're breaking that down. You're doing, uh, uh, by leaps and bounds, you've devoted your life to breaking down those barriers. And I, I'm proud of you for that. Thank you. I, I think we missed for many, many, many years, we missed the level of anxiety 
that daily living, let alone emergency yep. situations, produces yes. in the, individuals yep. with disabilities. And and um, I would real quick, Susan, I would yeah. even don't just limit that to people with disabilities. The number one mental health issue in the world is anxiety, anxiety for anyone. Disorder. So yeah, yep. continue, yep. sorry to, but yeah. I know. I've got kids who have them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we all have a form of PTSD. Susan, we talked about that. One of the things that I that I like is every once in a while I see that that you have cats. Now I would I would offer that as, <laughs> yes. as much as you can communicate with humans, I would venture that cats are an on or off switch. There's not a lot of understanding uh, a cat. So if you can communicate efficiently with a cat, you can you can communicate with anybody. <laughs> in I communicate I had, pretty uh, well with my cats. <laughs> I had many. When when we had the uh, when we had the ranch, Shelly and I had uh, what was called the barn cat crew that we inherited, yep. and and I believe we had forty four horses and probably equally that number of cats. Oh, and and you could see the thought that went through all their minds and what they wanted by just comparing that against a baseline, and then you could determine quickly what was going on. And and so they acted almost as a distant early warning system when something was different. If if it wasn't by plan. You could see that agitation starting. And, and so, you know, your, your system is that simple. Listen, if it's not simple, people aren't going to do it. And Susan, I, I'll tell you one thing that you probably found your entire career, and we find it too. Because we're not using the door ram, because we're not shooting fully automatic weapons, we're talking about thinking and, and uh, advanced critical thinking at that. Uh, people are going, well, why do I want to sit through that? Listen, it's not death by PowerPoint. It's learning how to communicate with the person next to you, with your yeah. own child with your neighbor's child, with your grandchild. So Brian, I think this, this has been a long time coming. It's fitting that it's in October and it's fantastic that we got the subject matter expert on the topic on the show. Well, thank you very much. And I, it, it, I love spreading my message. That's, that's my mission. I want to get every parent, every teacher, everybody who needs it, the information that they need to communicate with these kids and teach these kids to communicate. Well, we're certainly going to help yeah. you do that. And, and uh, that, that door swings both ways. So uh, uh, you know that on, on the website, we offer uh, the free podcasts and the free lessons learned to, to anybody from mom and dad to the first responders to the military people that are deployed. And, and now you're part of our family. And thanks for coming on the show because Brian, uh, Brian and I will make sure that when we're out there brief that we tell them about this and tell them how easy it is to, to hit a link and talk to you. Thank you. I, yeah. um, I appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for coming on, Susan. That's all for today, folks. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook at HBPRA. Check out our website at ArcadiaCognorati.com. Please, if you enjoyed the show, like it, share it, tell your friends about it. Let's get the word out there. And if there's something you want us to cover directly or curious about, go ahead and get a hold of us by email at leftofgreg at gmail.com. Thanks.